Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, y'all? This is Classified. This is Mocha Only. This is Sean Price. Yeah, Ghostface Killer. This is Quake Matthews. What's up, my brother Ali? Fight Diggy, Tribe Called Quest. Eloquent, man. What up, Styles Peter Ghost. This is Absol. This is K.O. And you listening to The Come Up Show, where that feel-good music lives. Hey. This is the show that you come up on, yeah. This is the spot that you come up strong. What's going on? Welcome to The Come Up Show podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm Martin Bauman, and this time we're doing something a little different. We're getting into the world of comic books. Unless you're living under a rock, you've probably heard of the Hip Hop Family Tree series by now. Maybe you've seen a strip online, even picked up a copy. The series goes back to the beginnings of hip hop. It tells some of the most interesting stories I guarantee you have not heard before. Some of these blew my mind. We're talking the origins of Cool Herc, Bombada, Grandmaster Kaz, Russell Simmons, Curtis Blow, the Fat Boys. All of this stuff is here, and the way it's told is so unique. Hip Hop Family Tree is actually so popular, it made the New York Times bestseller list. Today I talked to the man behind it all, Ed Pisker. We talk about everything from growing up in the boroughs of Pittsburgh, to finding inspiration for the series, to Chuck D's influence on him. Take a listen. Why don't we start off on the note of, of when your love for hip hop began, and I know it's sort of tough to pinpoint a time sometimes, but if we could maybe put it to the most formative hip-hop record for you growing up? Um, if, if we were to put it in those terms, like it, it would probably have to be an NWA record and uh, because I, I really did grow up in a landscape of, of hip-hop culture from, from the very beginning. I'm born in 1982. Um, you know, hip-hop at this point is already a fad everywhere. I'm from Pittsburgh. I've all, I've always been here. Um, but you know, it reached a wider audience beyond New York back, back then. Uh, and the, a, f- a friend of mine, we, 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 we busted into this, this uh, abandoned house and we saw like, you know, boxes of clothes and stuff like that was, le- that was left over. We thought we found a gun. Um, but we also found, um, an NWA, record it was their last record and when when we played it it was so crazy like you listen to that again and especially in today's you know overly pc culture Hmm. like it would make it would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up like with with all all the the crazy crap that they were talking about you know um so and we were young we were very very young so it was like powerful you know it really it really implant implanted something into our our neurology at that point um you know but but from that point you uh, like continue to just grow and 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 listen to more and more stuff you know there would be people walking up and down the street with with boom boxes all the time and and uh guys at the basketball court rapping to each other all the time so you know it was it was always a part of my world so at that time that you you hear that NWA record, how old are you? Uh, third grade. Oh wow! Um, so, okay. Yeah, so like te- ten years old. Similar time frame. I I guess I can't pinpoint it exactly, but what can you tell me about um, Fanatical Studios and and what age you were at at that time and uh, and and sort of piece together that that for me? Yeah. So like, I 
the area that I lived in, it was full, like it was, it was a crip neighborhood. Um, and gangs were, were a, a big deal. And I would get, I would get hassled a lot. Like, like, uh, the, the kids who in my grade who had bigger brothers who, who were in gangs and stuff, they were looking to earn stripes. So they would beat the crap out of, out of people, you know, to try to gain favor with, with the gangs and stuff. And, and I caught some butt whippings, uh, a couple times to the point where I would just like barely would like leave the house. So I started to draw and I continued drawing comics obsessively. And, um, one of, one of my, uh, cartooning heroes at, during my young age was this guy uh, named Rob Liefeld who, uh, who, you know, had a great success with his own, uh, studio called Extreme Studios. So I looked up the word extreme in a thesaurus and I saw fanatical. And, and, and so I named my bedroom fanatical studios. And, uh, it's, it seems to have uh, continued to, to, to grow because my apartment is basically fanatical studios, man. <laughs> now, and, and how would you describe uh, homestead to somebody who's, who hasn't been there? Uh, yeah. You know, to, to put it on the map, I guess you'd say. Well, like, like it's way different than it was. Um, like back then, you know, it seems like overnight after the, uh, the Reginald Denny video where he catches a brick to the head and, and there are all those guys dancing around his, his carcass. Uh, when that was, when that was, uh, streamed, you know, by way of satellite to like our local news sources, it seems like overnight we had red and blue gangs carving up territory here in Pittsburgh and, and, you know, in, in my neighborhood, certainly. Um, but, but it's not like that anymore. Like, like when I grew up there, there was a thing called the weed and seed program where, where, um, every single night, um, the, the, the city got the money to, to like pay this helicopter to go up and down every single street with a um with a spotlight to just shine it on the on i like i'm not sure what they were trying to accomplish but it really was like a militaristic like just trying to cause fear and and, and obedience or something like that um so like that is what the town was like when i grew up there i don't know that it's like that anymore uh i i don't live far away from there and you know i'm down there all the time and it's certainly not the way it used to be things have have stabilized a little bit more though they still have you know some trouble here and there sometimes how does that shape you growing up having helicopters flying overhead and being in that environment well i mean i it, it turned turned me into a scared little wuss uh, who who sat or who sat around drawing comics all day man <laughs> like like nobody uh nobody gets into the arts because you know they they have like you know a good situation going on or something like that and uh like, you know, the environment was, was, uh, you know, played a big helping hand in shaping my, my arts career. Uh, you know, I saw, I saw a shooting when I was five years old. I saw a shooting when like a shooting, that shooting happened behind my house. Uh, we moved a couple blocks away and there was a shooting in the back alley in which blood got on my basketball and, and I got really pissed off because they took my basketball away. Which, which just like goes to show like a sort of desensitization at that point. Uh, my next door neighbor got shot at that same place. Um, 
so so I, I'm sure like I don't see head shrinkers or anything like that, but I bet you if I did, man, I would be diagnosed with some kind of PTSD. Mm-hmm. Now, as artistically in that household, are, was there anybody you were were looking around to in your immediate family or your friends who were also drawing that got you into it, or or how did that start? Yeah, um, I think you could agree that that um, as a, as a kid, uh, it seems like everybody draws, you know, and then mm. and then who knows, man, maybe you, you start to focus on catching ground balls and then, you, and then you go into, into sports or something like that. But, but, uh, you know, I, sure. I sat around with my friends drawing and stuff like that, but very recently, um, you know, I visit my, my folks, uh, on the week, on the weekend sometimes. And, um, I was over there and, and my mom, this is, this is real recent. She was, she was knitting some kind of, uh, Afghan or, or some blanket or something. And she was just like going through these repetitive motions with her little, those like little needle things uh, to, 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 to make this, this blanket. And she's making a lot of progress right in front of me and she's just not stopping, but she just keeps going through these repetitive motions, repetitive motions. And then like I got home that night and I had to, 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 um, to ink a page where there, there was like, uh, like some housing projects in the background. And I noticed I was, I was, uh, inking in every single brick of these like very minute details and to the point that the rhythmic sounds that my pen was making hitting the paper sort of were syncopated with those motions that she went through freaking making this blanket <laughs> so so then i'm like okay so this is where i got this kind of like obsessive quality like like this is you know genetically passed down mm-hmm. um but she, you know, my mom, she, she draws a little bit, but it's really like what she passed on to me was like kind of an obsessive compulsive uh, component to my brain. You uh, growing up, you know, you're, you're surrounded by hip hop cultural around you, uh, but you're not really getting into emceeing or producing or, or breakdance or anything like that. But you did try graffiti at one point. Yeah. What, what kind of stuff were you doing? Were you tagging? Were you doing blow ups? Uh, how, how far did you go? Uh, yeah, like I wanted to, to, uh, like, like me and my friends, we were, we would paint graffiti burners and stuff like that. But, um, but I was so kind of new at it. It was such a new medium for me, for me. Um, and just like learning the craft was a challenge enough, not thinking, not adding, you know, the fact that it's illegal, cops could hassle you nobody wants it in their na- like like you know all all the the baggage that goes along with it but the bottom line was i was just, i'm just too wussy of a person to to really uh get a good footing in that world because like for instance there were a couple times that we went down to the train tracks well not a couple there was one time where we saw uh, a graffiti writer lay in there basically in a pool of blood after getting beat up by some other graffiti writers who 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 caught him and he must've gone over their stuff or something like this. And I just got to thinking like, okay, man, like the cops don't want this, you know, your mom doesn't want this. Uh, this doesn't really impress girls. And you have to worry about like rival graffiti dudes beating the hell out of you. <laughs> so, so I'm just like, ah, forget it, man. Like, <laughs> like I, I had this, I had this huge need, uh, this huge inferiority complex to just like, to just like share my art or something like that when I was young. And I knew I wasn't good enough to, to professionally make comics. So it's like, 
you know, it's almost like I disrespected the medium of graffiti culture or something like that because because it's like, well, okay, well, if I can't do comics right now, I'll just do graffiti. But there's that's you know the the people who are good at that, um, they they really 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 put in their time. What was the most uh, daring spot you went to, or the most elaborate piece you would have done? How much time, or or you know, I guess the the one that you would boast about the most in any case. Whether it was a hard to hit spot or or something that took a long time. Well, I definitely want to be clear that that I would not boast about any of it. Um, (laughs) Like, like I was just not, not that good at all. Um, But, you know, there was one time where, when we painted, uh, it was, it was my birthday and me and a couple friends, we, we dissed our girlfriends, which is, which is kind of silly in retrospect, but we went down to a wall and, and like, we, we decided to, to paint this this huge piece that was just like, uh, I don't know, it was like some weird like superhero type characters or something like that. But it was at a very popular spot where where a lot of people can take their time and, and produce, you know, elaborate stuff. Um, but the part of the wall that we chose to paint on, it was on, on this curve and it was, you know, on a, on a train trestle. So you would hear these trains coming, but you would imagine they would still, were still kind of far away or something like that. And, and we kind of got into a groove and we waited too long to where like we, we were too scared to like run across the tracks uh, to get away from the train. So we were kind of pinned up against the wall as this like long freight freight train was, was going by. And, you know, there was some clearance, maybe, maybe like two, three feet. But it felt like it might as well have been five inches mm-hmm. clearance. You know what I'm saying? And, and and the train is kicking up rocks, and the rocks are hitting us on our backs and stuff like that. Uh, it was it was pretty uncool. I have a feeling like everybody who falls in love with hip hop at one time or another, you know, comes up with some sort of uh, whether it's an MC name or some sort of name for themselves through hip hop, even if it never sticks. Uh, was that the case for you? Did you ever did you ever come up with a you know, a, a rap pseudonym or anything like that. No, no. Like, like I, I, uh, I very clearly early on was like, you know what, man, I, I need to be allowed to be a fan of something without, without, you know, having to participate. Like, like I'm one of those people that like, I don't, I don't understand hobbies and, and I, I just, I just don't get it. Like everything I do, I want to be the master of. And, um, and there was just no way I was, going to be able to put in the work i like i wasn't into it enough on a craft level to uh put in the, the work to become a, a master at it and i recognized that super early like with the drawing thing i pretty much never wanted to be anything but a cartoonist so i applied almost every every decision i made in my entire life with the outcome of like me being a cartoonist so it's like i would never spend money ridiculously like 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 all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm just too tightly wound, man, and, and uh, you know, never played around with, with those ideas. When you were a kid being a cartoonist, who was the the guy that you wanted to be? Who was the cartoonist you looked up to the most? Well, certainly as a kid, like I said, that, that Rob Liefeld guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, he was an inspiration to, like, many of the cartoonists in my generation um, because there was this particular Levi's jeans commercial that that he was featured on that was directed by spike lee and 
that came out around, you know, when I was in like third grade. Um, and, you know, he, the, Rob Liefeld, like at that time, he looked like a boy, you know, he looked like he might've just been like as old as any of your friends, bigger brothers or something like that. I think he was 21 or 22 and it put a face with the comics that we saw. So, you know, you would see credits within these comic book pages, you know, a guy who writes it, a guy who draws, draws it in pencil, et cetera, et cetera. But to actually see an actual person and to see him drawing and stuff, that was, that was totally crucial, man. Now, fast forwarding to the hip hop family tree, when does yeah. this idea come into your head that you want to tell this story? Yeah, I, I um, absolutely have been wanting to make a comic within the landscape of a hip hop environment for years and years and years and years. Like, like I have drawings from like 1995 of like B-boys and stuff like that, but I never knew what what the comic would be at that point. Like, like, you know, would it be a comic just about a, a, a cool uh, graffiti crew doing stuff or, you know, like I, I just had no idea. And it was to the day, uh, it was January 1st of 2012 when I just woke up in a new year's haze, you know, as we probably both did uh, a couple days ago. And, uh, I was just like, okay, I'm just going to start making a linear history of hip hop comic. Like I probably know more about uh, the history of rap music than almost every other cartoonist out there. Um, I have a certain way that I want this to look like, like, like I have to be the guy to make this thing. Um, and, and that's how it started. Like, like I just woke up and was like, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to just make this. So I like came up with it on that day. And then the first strip showed up, you know, seven days later. What was the what was the very first panel you drew? It was um, let me take a look. Like I know it was a Cool Herc story, but like mm-hmm. what first panel? Oh yeah, it's a it's a panel with a DJ Cool Herc inside the rec room at fifteen twenty Sedgwick. Yeah, just DJ in a party while while people are are getting down and dancing. Hmm. And then and then when I put when I put that strip online. Um, I was really hoping that people would dig it because I wanted to keep doing more. Like just in the process of doing research for that one strip, uh, m- many other threads, you know, manifest themselves um, that that were very visually striking and, and, and cool. And, and I wanted to draw the stuff. Uh, whenever I posted that strip online, I immediately knew I had had had. Uh, you know, frankly, a hit on my hands because it got way more feedback and way more traction than anything uh, I've I've ever done up to that point. Like it, it got traded a lot online and retweeted and retumbled and, you know, all that stuff that you would measure, uh, you know, a success at that at that period. You know what I mean? Like before there's a book, before there's anything like, uh, you know, that proved that people were were stoked to see something like this. Mm-hmm. Now, as you mentioned, you had all this sort of trivia kicking around, and you had all this knowledge that needed to be applied somewhere. Yeah. What was the the story that you were dying to tell? Whether you know one particular moment in the history of hip hop. I mean, you're you're telling much more than just one moment, but but the one that you're like, I gotta tell this to people and uh, and you know and give it life on a comic book page. Well, yeah. Well, what really fascinated me with 
what really fascinates me with with hip hop culture of of say the first say twenty five years of um, rap music or whatever is you know first off how kind of insular uh, a culture it was you know just within a very small part of you know one borough in New York City and then and then it kind of bloomed from there. Um, so what fascinated me was just the relationships, like how, how this person's related to this person to, to make this thing happen. And, uh, you know, the, the, the title hip hop family tree, like was, was, uh, something that I thought about a lot. Like it was a, something I considered a lot. And, and I think it's a perfect title because, because that, that is what fascinates me the most. Like you could, you could draw these connections between everybody from like, you know, say 1993 early, earlier, you know, it starts to get more dicey and, and more convoluted when there are fewer barriers to entry and people from like, you know, Georgia mm -hmm. can start rapping and stuff like that. But when it was a New York centric thing, uh, there were a lot of gatekeepers, man. And you had to get approval from, from like a lot of people to even, to even have the potential to do, to do work. And then there's the whole sort of six degrees of separation factor connecting the dots between between MC to MC and absolutely, and absolutely, and, and that's something I was I was good at early on, you know. So so it's like uh, I I know that there's this connection, um, you know. I know you know I see that production credit on on the um, liner notes or something like that, but like let me let me now flush out this knowledge and figure out like how that even was possible, like like how did they meet. Uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So when does it go from being this web feature that you're doing to Fantagraphics getting involved and, and now having a, you know, a, a deal where you know you're going to produce X amount of books and, and tell these certain amounts of stories? Yeah, uh, things, things really started to happen pretty fast. Um, I, think, I think almost every comic publisher was interested in, in publishing my stuff. Um, so that let me know I, I, I had something on my hands. Um, and when, and when you have, when you have, you know, several, when you have a lot of options, uh, then you could start making some demands and, um, you know, my demands were never really monetary because I figured, you know, the, the cash would come, um, because I could have, I could have sort of sold out and went to a New York publisher and made a whole lot of money up front you know but but these comic publishers they know how to handle series of books and and rather than just like a one-off thing mm -hmm. um so with these publishers i started to make some demands about like how i wanted the book to look um you know if you if you have seen like a physical copy of hip-hop family tree the, the 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 object is is bigger in scale than than most comic books that you see and that format is indicative of uh, the special comics that were available around the time frame that my story takes place. So I wanted it to, to have that vibe there. Anything that you do that's not standard costs more money. So the kind of paper I wanted to use was very special to, to really give that organic, you know, decomposing newsprint feeling of, you know, the late seventies and the early eighties. Um, when I started making those demands, a lot of publishers just started saying like, well, no, how about we do this? And I don't listen to anybody, dude. Like, like, I, like I'm not interested in anybody's suggestions. 
Um, and Fanagraphics was the publisher who never said no to any of my ideas. And uh, I'm a big fan of their brand. You know, like, like I grew up reading comics like 8-Ball and Acme Novelty Library um, and the complete Robert Crumb comics series. Like, all these things were published by Fanagraphics. So it's cool to be a part of that pantheon of, of, cartoon, of cartooning history. Now, as you're... I mean, as this sort of comes into place and you, you realize it's going to be a, a lengthier undertaking, you're going to have some, you're going to have some support as to now pursuing this and really dive into this project. Uh, I, I imagine you start doing more research and, and fleshing out the bits in, in the history that you don't already sort of have kicking around in your head. So what's the, the most mind-blowing story that you come across doing your research work? Um, mind-blowing. Uh... Well, I, I guess like some of the most mind blowing stuff, I, I would have to confess, like doesn't really happen. Like it, it 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 doesn't have to do with like rap music per se, um, but like for instance, like in the book that I just finished, the, the fourth volume, mm -hmm. um, there's in like nineteen eighty five, there's a remix of an older song that has a hook that we all know you know the roof the roof the roof is on fire we don't need no water let the blankety blank burn we all know that hook right mm -hmm. um the popularity of that song came about like it was created before this like catastrophe happened but but it became popular after this catastrophe and what the catastrophe was was um there was there was this uh group uh, almost a cult, almost a political group. Like they, they're kind of murky about like what they call themselves. Um, but anyhow, they they kind of had a war going on with the Philadelphia Police Department, and these people they they kind of you know destroyed the sidewalk in front of their their house so that they could you know plant plant food and make a garden out of it because they wanted to be completely self sustaining and stuff. But these people also built like a big, um, like, like a, like a fort on top of their townhouse with gun turrets and stuff, um, like little windows where they could shoot out of. Hmm. And this whole thing happened where the Philadelphia police department first time in, in U S history where, uh, you know, a, a police department drops a freaking bomb on their house and, and they let the fire continue burning which subsequently burnt down three blocks of philadelphia that have still never been the same um i never knew that story mm -hmm. i had no idea that that happened a lot of my peers have zero idea that that happened i have one friend from philadelphia who who knew about it because because of his proximity and he used to talk about how they would all kind of like make fun of it and, and sing that roof is on fire song and i'm like hold up like I know that that song is from from around that period of time, and just doing some some reading and stuff, and and you know I discovered that that remix like like you know became wildly popular like after those moments. So so that's probably like the most mind blowing thing, but it's only tangentially related to a hip hop record. Right. Uh, I want to read back a quote of yours. I wish I could remember which interview this came from, but I, I like it and I think it's a, a good building point. Um, you once said that you like to read about people who overcome obstacles to create vibrant, interesting pieces of work. It's something about your love for hip-hop. You like the idea of people in a very destitute part of America who really had nothing, 
and then they just build this huge culture. Can we talk about that? That um, that amazing aspect of hip hop of of coming from virtually nothing to being ubiquitous and and such a huge part of of global culture. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's something that that I relate to in a very very big way. Um, the the part of Pittsburgh that I come from, Homestead, uh, is well, it was a a mill town produced steel out of a uh, out of Homestead. And my mom and dad both worked at the steel mill. And I was born in 82. And in 1983, everybody got laid off. Um, and my folks, like my dad was working there for almost 30 years. Like that, like all, all skills he had were wrapped up in this steel thing. And, uh, and, you know, we stayed in that neighborhood. Like he, he, he got, you know, bullshit jobs for, for years and years. And, and, and we didn't have anything, you know, like we, there was pencil and paper, but even that would run out sometimes, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm also kind of like an inspiration junkie. Like it's kind of hard to sit in the chair all day drawing comics and I need to, to like, at least feel like there's some purpose or like some, some greater cool thing that'll come from it. And I, I, uh, identify myself with with hip-hop artists in that same way who've come from similar if not worse circumstances and uh achieved you know success so it's that whole thing where you know if you see that it's humanly possible you know if, if a human has done it then you know it's it's possible to replicate kind of thing so i think that, that was an initial attraction that that i saw um in, in rap music. Going back to uh, Hip Hop Family Tree, uh, I mean, you, you cover so many different artists and different players throughout the culture in your books. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear what some of the feedback of people that you've portrayed is, particularly Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, if you've heard anything from either of them about the way that you portray them so far in the history. Um, like, bo- like both guys have sort of gotten in touch with me through like, like liaison type mm-hmm. people. Um, and, and, uh, it's never like, like it's not negative. Um, like, like Russell came kind of talking about some, some other projects that, that he's got in the cooker and kind of wanted to fly me out to, um, to like punch up a bunch of stuff and, mm-hmm. and kind of add some, add some of my flavor to it. So, um, you know, that's, that's not a bad thing. (laughs) Not at all. And I think it was maybe like the 30th anniversary of Def Jam last year. Um, and like Rick Rubin, like they, they wanted to, they wanted me to make a comic, like an exclusive Def Jam history comic, um, for them. But I quoted like a, a ridiculous price because it's like, you know, I don't want to tell the story twice. And I definitely don't want to tell like a skewed version that's like, you know, where they're the, the gatekeepers who, who who are the ones who t- tell the history. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I would do it for an exorbitant price that would make it so that I don't have to work for years. And I never heard back from them. Uh, so so, uh, you know, I don't think he would have hit me up if, if he would have would have disliked it. Do you think uh, 
there's a difference between you doing telling the story now uh, versus if you had been in this position, you know, early 20s, facing that same sort of, of pressure to, to conform to artists and, and how they're being portrayed? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, uh, at this point, I've been doing my own thing pretty much since I was 21 years old. Um, and I've never had a boss, um, you know, never really had to answer to anybody. I would, I would do some work for hire stuff here and there, but it was just a, it was nothing. It would, it would take two hours out of my day. Uh, so I have a chip on my shoulder, man. Uh, it, like, like, I don't think anybody has better ideas for me to do than myself. Um, but back when I was starting out, I probably would have done anything, man. So, so like the, the comic would like I would be able to be manipulated way easier mm-hmm. if I was green, you know, like I like I, I talk with a lot of people um, who are like, yeah, man, make sure you get my part of the story right whenever whenever, you know, the time comes and stuff. And then, and then they'll tell me this, this stuff that's like, you know, it's probably technically slanderous and libelous and stuff like that. And it certainly pumps up their story. And it also can't be like you can't find a second source to corroborate anything they say like you know that some of these dudes will say Mm -hmm. um in certain instances but i probably would have been like oh yes sir like i'll be happy to like i will make that comic exactly that way and and uh you know it would be a big piece of crap um so so like i'm i feel like i'm at like the perfect age to 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 produce such a work so that that is an interesting point then uh so if somebody were to come to your to reading hip-hop family tree they haven't read it before uh and they're picking it up uh, you could say that, you know, what they're reading in front of them has has been, you know, history that's been told from not just one source, but it's been, you know, corroborated from different uh, different perspectives, and 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 is in very way uh, very much an authentic history. Well, like I uh, when it's very important to me to try to get the the most comprehensive, you know, version of this history, and you you do that by by reading a lot and, and, and talking to a lot of people and, and trying to, trying to, trying to kind of corral everything into, into a, a clear, a clear text. Um, and also this was an online thing to start. And, and I'm sure you, you know how it goes, man. Like people online are very excited to like tell you if you did something wrong. <laughs> yep. So, so I wanted to have a lot of sources, like a lot of source material just for those moments you know, because I like to make people feel stupid if they if they try to fuck with me. Um, and I would just like that was my motivation. And then after a while, people are like calling me like, you know, saying that I use like j- journalistic practices and stuff. And I had to look that up because I wasn't comfortable with that. But I'm like, I guess I mean, I guess I can't deny it, you know, like like, you know, at the at the root of like what journalism is, uh, you know, this comic fits inside that rubric what has been uh, the most rewarding reaction for you you've had from people that you've portrayed in the hip-hop family tree uh you know people who respond really positively to it and and embrace it it's just real fun whenever um somebody like makes me aware of you know they'll tag me in a post uh whenever they see like you know like ice cube share a strip on his Twitter and Facebook and stuff like people will in the comments, like tag me in it so that I see it. And then I take a look and I see that like, you know, 15,000 people just shared it or something. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, that like, would, you know, spreads it even further. And that's really cool, man. Cause that's like a, that's, that's like a, um, it's like a head nod or something where it's like, like they wouldn't share like what, like for instance, like when ice cube shared the thing, he didn't say like, you know, this is a big piece of crap. It's all lies. He said, yo, read this story about when me and Dr. Dre first met, you know, he mm-hmm. like, you know, even like took ownership of it in a certain way, which, you know, it's his story. Uh, and, uh, and so that was cool. And, and that happens a lot. And every time that happens, that gives you another cosign of, of authenticity uh, that you, you let, no, lets you know that you're telling the story in the right way. Yeah, yeah. It's a big, big uh, breath of fresh air, man. It's a, it's a big, big sigh of relief um, on, on, you know, it, it very it almost never happens to the inverse. Um, but like on like New Year's Day or no, it's like New Year's Eve. Um, like Curtis Blow hit me up on Twitter and was and was like, I've been trying to fight this for for years. And it was a panel from the first book that says, um, you know, Curtis Blow is was was named like sort of after another rapper whose name was Eddie Chiba and right. Chiba and Chiba's marijuana. Uh, Blow is cocaine and cocaine is is more high class. And that, and that was the inspiration for the name. And I had that panel in there. And Curtis Blow is like, you know, this, the the words here like upset me, and it destroys the art. And then I replied like, yo, this is um, this is from basically from the mouth of Russell Simmons, uh, in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And and he like responded like, that's why I left Russland a lot of years ago. I'm not in the Empire anymore. He says, and I'm like, oh, okay, so so he's not. He's not insulted by my work. He's he's like embarrassed that this name that he's attached to uh, is in reference to cocaine, and he's like a pious, uh, like born again, um, you know, pastor dude or something like that. He's a religious cat, you know. Mm-hmm. Like he he responds with everything with like you know gl- glory be to God and and shit like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> when you're when you're undertaking a, a book, you're trying to pinpoint whether it's a year or, you know, several years. How do you decide what makes the cut and what doesn't? In in these these early volumes, it, it's it's really possible to talk about almost everything because there wasn't that much. Um, with say volume three and four, um, I I made the decision that unless it's you know, an amazing kind of anomaly that, that I would only, well, this is even a little bit loose too, but basically the story that is going to evolve from here, um, the characters that get introduced are going to have some relationship with one of the say 500 characters I've already introduced Mm -hmm. to, to maintain that family tree structure so so that's so that's kind of the spine of my thing now to where like like I would have loved to have talked about you know this song called um Street Justice by the Rake which I which I uh recommend you listen to because it's really ridiculous um I would have loved to have talked about that but it just doesn't fit in with with anybody else um, and it just happened once. It was this manufactured thing that was written by some guys who aren't even into rap or whatever. Um, 
and it's based on uh, the Death Wish uh, Charles Bronson movies. Hmm. Um, but it, so it, it didn't fit into into my narrative. So I so I you know I decided to s- surgically remove that from from the thing. But when I do interviews and stuff, I bring it up just because people should should uh, listen to it. Also on the on the on the note of uh, getting reaction from from artists and just sort of becoming a, a bit bigger part of that network. What have you discovered about people in hip hop? Uh, who the biggest comic book fans are out there? Who, who surprised you the most in terms of being really into comics? Um. Yeah, you know, I, I just I just don't know. Like, like uh, one one of the things that that I that is also really fun is whenever these guys, you know, on their own Instagrams or something like that, uh, have a copy of Hip Hop Family Tree and they're kind of showing it off. And you know, that's happened a couple times, man. At um, Horovitz from the Beastie Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, Africa Bambata uh, was 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 um, showing off the cover of the second volume where where he was the the the, the cover star. Um, you know that happens, but the, the the comic fans within within hip hop, it's not like it's not hidden. You know, like like it's in their lyrics and stuff. So so um, you know, it was never really that much of a surprise to me. Right. What about this uh, connection that you have to Public Enemy? I mean, it seems like every time <laughs> you portray yourself, you're wearing some sort of Public Enemy clothing. Uh, where does where does the significance of Public Enemy, like what what does that have to to do with you? Or what does it mean to you? Well, like you know, when when I was young and growing up, um, like like my my dad being one of those mill worker guys who got laid off. He ended up becoming one of those mill worker guys who gets shipped to other countries to teach, you know, outsourced labor, how to do the job that he did for 20 years. So so in the midst of like living in the the war zone at the time of, of Homestead, uh, like my pops was like never there, man. Um, so so it was like it was we were like extra scared growing up and stuff. And there was just something about about the 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 kind of uh, stance and and some of the stuff that Chuck D would would talk about that really became just important for my young development just as a man you know growing into a man and stuff like that um I've never really I've never really drank alcohol in any significant way never smoked never did a drug and that's like a Chuck D thing um you know, I try to hold myself up to a high standard, and, and I think that that's something that Chuck D would do. So, so in a weird way, I just listened to those records and almost like uh, thought of him as like kind of like a father figure. And I don't know, it's just something that I, that like I, I was very important to me, uh, just just pretty much my whole life. So yeah, there was like a period of time when when from like say age say 13 to like age say 23 where every single shirt i owned was some sort of public enemy shirt that i either bought bootlegged or silk screened myself <laughs> uh being a hip-hop fan what was the first hip-hop show you ever went to uh this might shock you 
to 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 find out that it was a public enemy show that that was <laughs> that was uh here here in town um in like the the like the mid 90s or something like that um it was cool cuz it was like sort of off like it was post fight the power and stuff where they were still playing venues where you could get close enough to 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 um you know to to touch them if if you if you wanted to uh, and, that, and that's the only kind of stuff that I try to check out. Like, I've, I've never been to any kind of, like, arena performance or something. Like, I've never seen Jay-Z or anything like right. that, even though I like his records. Because, like, I'm not I'm not trying to pay, like, a million dollars to sit up to sit to sit up to the point that, like, you know, he, he looks like an ant or something like that. And, and then every and then everybody in Pittsburgh knows that, like, you know, if Public Enemy is, is in town, like, you don't even have a chance to be in the front. If if I, if I show up, like like you just know you you can't be around. Like you have to carve a, a path for me to get up to the front, man. Because like I belong there, and and you, and you don't basically. <laughs> now, in the case of Public Enemy, when they're doing a show like that, is it is it the case like where they're they're lingering after the show and they're meeting with fans, or it's just it's just a very small venue? Yeah, no, of course, yeah. Like I, uh, we got we got back and, and met the, the guys a whole bunch man um yeah like there there's some definitely some cool moments where uh there were um this one time man there was like these these like really um obnoxious like groupie type chicks who were trying to like get all over chug d and, and he's like nah man I'm, I'm trying to eat like he wouldn't he wouldn't shake their hand or touch them or anything like that and then uh and then like i was you know, coming up to like say hi or something like that. And then he shook my hand, but I saw that he kind of like this, those, you know, super hot yet obnoxious girls. Yeah. And I, I thought that that was kind of cool. One other question for you. Uh, you've been doing some, I mean, you've been doing so much research in terms of compiling these uh, volumes of hip hop family tree. Could you recommend different things for further reading or viewing based on documentaries you've watched or books you've read? things that you were really impressed by um, and, you know, feel are, are valuable contributors to the culture. Yeah, for sure. Like in, in the, the, the list, the list is expansive. Um, but things like Dan Charnas is the big payback. Then um, there's a book called Yes, Yes, Y'all. So, uh, uh, you know, the first decade of hip hop or something like that. And that's like an oral history where straight from the mouths of the performers comes this, this sprawling narrative. Um, documentaries, man. Ice T put out that documentary a couple years ago called "The Art of Rap." Mm -hmm. That that is that is pretty great. Um, Style Wars, Wild Style, those flicks. Um, you know, there's there's a lot. The the Combat Jack podcast, when uh, you know, depending on the guest, yeah, um, is is such an amazing document of the history of hip hop. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff. Like I make sure to to call, call out a bunch of stuff in the in the back of my books, just so that people can can read further. But but you know, off the top of the head, those things that I just mentioned are some of my some of my favorites. All right. Well, lastly, if you could uh, set the stage and uh, sort of give a preview of what what Volume Four looks like, um, how would you describe it for people who are anticipating it? What what sort of stories are being told? Um, it's a period, it's 1984, 85. Um, there is a visible transition from like the, 
from like the old school to like a new era of of rap and hip hop and it introduced like this volume is going to introduce people like um Will Smith and um Salt and Pepper mm-hmm. and you know in all of their earliest uh in all their earliest forms um you know this this volume is going to 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 kind of root uh and 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 seal the mantle of um run dmc as being like the superstars that 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 we know them to be you know they kind of like existed in volume three from you know 83 84 but like they really become you know the the icons that that we know them to be in volume four so it is like a paradigm shift of like you know it's not just the bronx anymore Mm -hmm. and and then also uh uh, now I think about it. Um, this this fourth volume, like like Hollywood takes notice at this point. So 1984, 85, there are movies like Beat Street, Breaking One Two, uh, Rapping, uh, Crush Groove in 1985. You know, there's like there's like five feature films that that I talk about the making of and the behind the scenes stories. Well, there you have it. If you enjoyed the show, help us out. Subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, too, at The Come Up Show. That's it for this week. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 